frog-like briefly. It was difficult to disturb this man. He had everything he could possibly ever need. He was Joseph Castleman, one of those men who own the world. You know the type, I mean. Those advertisements for themselves, those sleepwalking giants roaming the earth and knocking over other men, women, furniture, villages. Why should they care? They own everything. The seas and mountains, the quivering volcanoes, the dainty, ruffling rivers. There are many varieties of this kind of man. Joe was the writer version. A short, wound-up, slack-bellied novelist who almost never slept, who loved to consume runny cheeses and whiskey and wine, all of which he used as a vessel to carry the pills that kept his blood lipids from congealing like yesterday's pan drippings, who was as entertaining as anyone I have ever known, who had no idea of how to take care of himself or anyone else, and who derived much of his style from the Dylan Thomas Handbook of Personal Hygiene and Etiquette. There he sat beside me on Finnair Flight 702, and whenever the brunette brought him something, he took it from her. Every single cookie and smokehouse-treated nut and pair of spongy throwaway slippers and steaming washcloth rolled Torah tight. If that luscious cookie woman had stripped to her waist and offered him one of her breasts, mashing the nipple into his mouth with the assured authority of a La Leche Commandant, he would have taken it. No questions asked. As a rule, the men who own the world are hyperactively sexual though not necessarily with their wives. Back in the 1960s, Joe and I leapt into beds all the time, occasionally even during a lull at cocktail parties, barricading someone's bedroom door and then climbing a mountain of coats. People would come banging, wanting their coats back, and we'd laugh and shush each other and try to zip up and tuck in before letting them enter. We hadn't had that in a long time, though if you'd seen us here on this airplane heading for Finland, you'd have assumed we were content, that we still touched each other's sluggish body parts at night. Listen, you want an extra pillow? He asked me. Now I hate those doll pillows, I said. Oh, and don't forget to stretch your legs like Dr. Krentz said. You'd look at us, Joan and Joe Castleman of Weathermill, New York, and currently seats 3A and 3B, and you'd know exactly why we were traveling to Finland. You might even envy us, him for all the power vacuum-packed within his bulky shop-worn body, and me for my twenty-four-hour access to it, as though a famous and brilliant writer husband is a convenience store for his wife, a place she can dip into any time for a big gulp of astonishing intellect and wit and excitement. People usually thought we were a good couple, and I suppose that once a long, long time ago, Back when the cave paintings were first sketched on the rough walls at Lascaux, back when the earth was uncharted and everything seemed hopeful, this was true. But soon enough we moved from the glory and self-love of any young couple to the green algae swamp of what is delicately known as later life. Though I'm now sixty-four years old and mostly as invisible to men as a swirl of dust motes, I used to be a slender, big-titted blonde girl with a certain shyness that drew Joe toward me like a hypnotized chicken. I don't flatter myself.
Joe was always drawn to women. All kinds of them. Right from the moment he entered the world in 1930, via the wind tunnel of his mother's birth canal. Lorna Castleman, the mother-in-law I never met, was overweight, sentimentally poetic and possessive, loving her son with a lover's exclusivity. Some of the men who own the world, on the other hand, were ignored throughout their childhoods, left sandwichless at lunchtime in bleak schoolyards. Lorna not only loved him, but so did her two sisters who shared their Brooklyn apartment, along with Joe's grandmother Mems, a woman built like a footstool, whose claim to fame was that she made a mean brisket. His father, Martin, a perpetually sighing and ineffectual man, died of a heart attack at his shoe store when Joe was seven, leaving him a